All right, why don't you go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke uh, chapter 24. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12 here in just a few minutes, so you can uh, go ahead and hold your place there. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you are tasked with starting a religion. Now think about this for a minute. You are expected to get the religion off the ground in your hometown. So, okay, most of us are in Pataskala, live in Pataskala, so you're expected to get the religion started here in Pataskala. And then you're to see that the religion spreads to the surrounding communities. And then throughout the state of Ohio, eventually uh, it spreads throughout the entire country. And then it is to eventually become a worldwide religion. This is your, this is your job. This is your uh, task. But here are the conditions. This is the founding story that you have to tell to get your religion off the ground. Here it is. Your religion has to be centered on a flesh and blood man who you claim is God. You must include in your founding story that after three years of of, uh, teaching and preaching and gathering followers, this man who you say is God has 12 really committed followers. You must say that this man who you claim is God was tried and condemned by both religious and civil authorities and that he was sentenced to be executed in a manner that was reserved for the worst of the worst criminals in society. You have to say that before he was executed, he predicted that he would rise from the dead. And then part of your founding story must be that he was actually executed. And that when he was, his followers became completely demoralized and scattered. You must say that on the third day after he was executed, some women, unreliable witnesses (laughs) in, in the culture at the time. Ladies, I'm sorry, that's just historically factual. Uh, unreliable witnesses at the time, very reliable witnesses today, but unreliable then, uh, went, <laughs> went to put spices on the body and found that the body was no longer in the tomb that it had been laid in. You must say that angels appeared to these women and told them that the man had risen from the dead and that they then went back and told the rest of the man's followers that he had risen from the dead. And you must teach that your faith is not worth believing if this story is not true. And you must say that the 12 people who who were the most committed followers of this man did not believe the women. In fact, thought that their claim was nonsense. This is your founding story. This is what you have to work with to to get your religion off the ground and see it grow into the most influential religion in the world, eventually claiming a third of the world's population as members. Now, really allow yourself to think about this for a minute. How would you feel if you had been tasked with starting a religion 
And this was the founding story that you had to tell to get the thing off the ground. A, a person that's given this task would no doubt feel that they had been giving, given a, a very impossible task. That they would feel that the conditions were completely unfair. I'm certain that this would be a question that would come from a person's lips who had been given this task. Could we please come up with a different founding story? I do not think this one is going to, to, to go very far. I don't think this is going to lead us anywhere. I don't think I'm going to be able to get any followers with this story. Here's another question. Who thought this was doable? Who, who, who decided that this is how I could get a religion off the ground? And I think that most of us would probably say, you know what? If you don't give me a different founding story to start with, I'm just not going to accept this task. Because what you're doing is you are setting me up for failure. Most of you know that what I have just shared with you is the founding story of Christianity. That's it. That's the founding story. With a founding story like this, it is reasonable for a person to ask, why is there a Christian church that expanded from the city of its founding to the surrounding towns throughout the nation, throughout the entire Roman Empire, throughout the entire known world, and today, 2,000 years later, has spread to the entire world and has over 2 billion people who claim it as their religion, uh, one-third, roughly one-third of the world's population. With a founding story like that, why does the church exist today. It doesn't add up. The story is too incredible. As we come today to Luke 24, 1 through 12, we're also going to look briefly at verses 33 through 43. We come to the story of Christ's resurrection and his disciples' response to the resurrection. I'm going to begin reading these verses 1 through 12, and then we'll see what we can learn about why the church exists, even though its founding story is so out there. Here it is. Read along with me. Silently, not out loud. Just follow along with me. Have you ever been at a church that does that well? Everybody reads together. It's an impressive thing. There aren't actually many churches where it works well, though. It's usually just chaotic. Can I get a witness? No. no All right. So, so you follow along as I read. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the others. 
It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. So Jesus has been crucified. His disciples are absolutely demoralized. And on the third day after his crucifixion, these women go to the grave of Jesus fully expecting to find a dead body there, to find his dead body there. There was no expectation of resurrection in them at all. They were coming to place spices on the dead body. But they find an empty tomb, and they are told by two angels that Jesus has risen from the dead, and the angel makes the point to say, as he told you, that he would. I think it is so important for us as we consider the resurrection of Jesus to understand very clearly that the disciples were people who were not expecting Jesus' resurrection even though he told them it was going to happen. Again, we see this in the actions of the women. They were coming basically to embalm Jesus. They came without hope. They came resigned to the fact that Jesus was dead. And we see this clearly in the reaction of the apostles when the women come to them and report what they had seen and heard. The women came back from this experience, report that the body of Jesus was gone, report what the angels told them, and what is the reaction of the eleven? Jesus' closest followers, verse 11, they did not believe them. They didn't believe it. And, And verse 11 goes on to say that they viewed what the women were saying as nonsense. Jesus' own disciples. People who had heard him say he would be crucified and be raised on the third day. After he did rise on the third day, these very people were skeptical of the resurrection. The skepticism of Jesus' most loyal followers speaks to the authenticity of the Gospels. It speaks to the authenticity of what we read about. These are not fabricated stories. These are not made-up stories. Nobody would include this information in a fabricated story, such negative information about the closest followers of Jesus. This is not a whitewashed accounting of events that you would expect from a story that had been fabricated. The Gospel writers recorded the events for us exactly as they happened. And it's really a remarkable thing to reflect on the fact that Jesus' closest followers were skeptical of the resurrection even after the tomb was empty. Even after the tomb was empty. They see it. They see the body gone. And yet, they are skeptical. You know, some of us have been Christians for so long, believed in the resurrection so long, that we have lost sight of something. Skepticism about the resurrection is understandable. It's understandable. I mean, most of us have never seen somebody rise from the dead. 
We've heard stories from foreign lands from time to time of people being raised to life after having died. But at least no one that I know has ever personally witnessed someone being raised to life from the dead. We have hope of life beyond this life. But for this life, death is final. We, we, we don't see people coming back from it. It's understandable that they struggle to believe because resurrection is something that is hard to believe for people who have always seen death win. For people who have never seen death overcome. It's hard to believe in the resurrection. In their skepticism over the resurrection, these uh, disciples were acting very modern. They're acting very modern. You know, we fancy ourselves in the year 2012 as being people who are more skeptical and more sophisticated than people from times uh, past. We, we imagine that the early disciples of Jesus could believe in things like miracles and the resurrection because they were more gullible than we are today, less sophisticated, less scientific, less, less skeptical. And yet the evidence tells us exactly the opposite. Leon Morris writes this, The apostles were not men poised on the brink of belief and needing only the shadow of an excuse before launching forth into a proclamation of the resurrection. He says they were utterly skeptical. In light of all this skepticism, how is it that the church got off the ground, spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth, and today is the religion that is at least claimed by more people than any other religion, encompassing nearly a third of the world's population. How did that happen? Why does the church exist against such incredible odds with such an unlikely founding story? The church exists because people who were skeptical became convinced that it's true that Jesus rose from the dead. People who were not poised on the brink of belief, but rather were utterly skeptical, became convinced that it was true, that Jesus had in fact risen from the dead. We're told that Peter got up and, and after this announcement from the women and ran to the tomb. This is in verse 12. It tells us that he bent over. He saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, indicating that Jesus was not there. And we're told that after seeing this, Peter went away wondering to himself what had happened. Peter has now seen the empty tomb, but he still does not believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. He still does not proclaim Christ risen. He was not poised on the brink of belief. If he had been, all he would have needed was the empty tomb and he would have proclaimed Christ risen. But he was not poised on the brink of belief. He remains skeptical. He wonders to himself what happened. I'm going to talk more about this in a minute and, and I can't prove it, but I, I think 
that Peter was entertaining a number of possibilities here. And I think that somewhere deep down on the inside, Peter wondered, could it be possible that Christ has risen from the dead? But he doesn't know. He, he remains uncertain. It seems like it would be too good to allow himself to think that that could be true. And so he remains skeptical. All of this that we've talked about to this point tells us something that totally refutes what the critics of Christianity claim. All of these things tell us that the church did not create the resurrection. The church did not create the resurrection. The resurrection is not an elaborate story the disciples made up to get their religion off the ground They were skeptical of the story. The church only exists today, 2,000 years later, because people who started off utterly skeptical became absolutely convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. So how were they able to be convinced? What took them from skepticism to belief? They became convinced of the resurrection because they could not deny the overwhelming evidence that was plain for them to see. They became convinced because they could not deny what they were able to see with their own eyes. For starters, we already have touched on this one, but for starters, the tomb was empty. We can already see from the reaction of the disciples that this didn't fit their expectations. They hadn't planned this. They didn't even believe it. They were demoralized, and yet... Once they started running around Jerusalem proclaiming that Jesus had risen, in spite of much incentive, the religious and political authorities were never able to disprove the claim. All they would have had to do is produce the deceased body of Jesus and Christianity would have been stopped in its tracks. It would have never gotten off the ground. We would not be gathered here today celebrating Christ in Pataskala, Ohio. They went from skepticism to belief because the tomb was empty. But that in itself was not enough for them. They needed more. And they got more. How were they able to be convinced? Because not only did they see an empty tomb, they also saw the risen Jesus. It's not just the witness of an empty tomb. They saw Jesus risen. Here in Luke, we see a number of evidence of this. Uh, In the remaining verses of chapter 4, we learn that Jesus appeared personally to two disciples who were walking on the road to Emmaus. We learn in verse 34 of this chapter that between Peter having gone to the tomb and Jesus appearing to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, that Jesus had somewhere in there appeared to Peter. And then we learn in verses 36 through 43 that Jesus appeared to the 11, which is his 12 closest disciples minus Judas Iscariot who had betrayed him. Now, critics will sometimes protest that all these different people who saw Jesus were simply uh, hallucinating or, or seeing a ghost. People don't share the same hallucination. Multiple people do not share the same hallucination. So, so that one doesn't work. Now, actually, on this other one of seeing a ghost, the followers of Jesus 
actually had the same thought as the critics on this point. They initially thought they were seeing a ghost. Verse 37 says that when Jesus appeared to them, quote, they were startled and frightened thinking they saw a ghost. You know, critics often think that they've come up with something to really, kind of like a gotcha for Christianity. And what they don't realize is Jesus' followers, like, beat them to the gotcha. (laughs) They thought this long before anybody decided to criticize it. They thought they had seen a ghost. But Jesus answered them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your mind? Look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. The tomb is empty. They see Jesus. They don't just see Jesus. They touch Jesus. They not only see and touch him, they eat with him. Verse 42, they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. They went from skepticism to belief because they could not deny what was plain to see. They couldn't deny that they had seen Jesus, that they had touched Jesus, that they had eaten with Jesus. And this wasn't the only time that they interacted with the risen Christ. The book of John records for us that after uh, his resurrection and his initial appearing to them, he appeared to them again while they were fishing. They weren't catching anything and he gave them some advice. They took his advice and they caught a lot of fish. He also lovingly, after eating those fish, reinstated Peter who had denied him during his hour of greatest need, hour of greatest trial. Luke tells us in the book of Acts, the same author in the second book that he wrote, the book of Acts, he tells us that Jesus appeared to his disciples many times over a period of 40 days and, quote, gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. It leads us to believe that they continued to struggle with this. But Jesus continued to give them the proofs that they needed to finally get to the place where they believed. So much so, did they finally believe that they were willing to give their lives, proclaiming the resurrection even in the face of martyrdom. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul gives us even more fascinating information about the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. He tells us that Jesus appeared to Peter, that he appeared to the twelve, and then he says, after that, he appeared to more than 500 at the same time. Did you catch that? He appeared to up to five, actually over more than 500 people at one time. This means that there were 500 people in Jerusalem who could be talked to and asked, did you really see Jesus alive? These things could be verified. 500 witnesses to the risen Christ. 
And all of these people who believe or who experienced the risen Christ, who saw him, who touched him, believed. Why did they believe? Because they could not deny what was plain to see. They became convinced because Jesus really had risen. And friends, here's what we need to understand. The church did not create the resurrection. The church was created by the resurrection. Without the resurrection, there is no church. The church exists because Christ is risen. That's why we're here. Nothing else makes sense. It, it, it is It's an out there story. Nobody would have dreamed this up and said, yeah, 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 yeah. That'll get a religion off the ground. That would only get a religion off the ground if it was the truth. And it is the truth. Nothing else accounts for the existence of a church that has such an implausible founding story. Except that the founding story The founding event is absolutely true. Skeptics became believers because the evidence left them no alternative. I mean, it's like looking at a a blue sky and saying, well, that's that's orange. No, it's plain to see. The, the, The evidence left them no alternative but to believe. The church exists because Jesus did rise from the dead on the third day. He is alive today. He is coming again to receive us to himself and he will reign forever and ever and ever. That's the truth. That's why there is a church. It is okay to clap on occasion. The church is here because the resurrection is true. It really happened, and Jesus is alive. Now, now there are a few things, uh, uh, three actually important applications that I want us to take from this today. First, I think that those of us who have believed in Jesus for a really long time should not be surprised when people who are considering faith in Christ stumble over the resurrection. We should not be surprised by that. We have just talked a lot here today. Jesus' closest followers were skeptical. They stumbled over the resurrection. It is difficult for people who have always seen death win, never seen death defeated, to truly believe that Jesus conquered death. And because it is hard for people to believe that, the Holy Spirit has to be at work as we share our belief in the resurrection. And he needs to be at work in the lives of those who hear us share it. He has to be at work in their lives to enable them to receive the truth about the resurrection. And so just a suggestion that I have for us is I think that we should spend less time sort of frustrated that people struggle to believe in the resurrection, and more time praying that God would grant them the grace to believe in the resurrection. 
And so I think that this is a prayer that we as a congregation should should just commit to praying in our daily lives. God, the people around me who, who you want me to talk to, who you want me to tell about, about the truth of Jesus and his resurrection, God, before I ever talk to them, be at work in their hearts. Give them the grace to believe this thing that I know is hard for people to believe. Pray in that direction. Secondly, I think we need to understand that the first steps of faith often include this question. Could it be? Is it possible? Consider Peter's reaction at the empty tomb again. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Now, we can only speculate here, but I believe that Peter, though skeptical, though uncertain, left the tomb kind of with this attitude. Could it be? Is it possible? Just maybe Jesus did rise from the dead. I I tend to think that he wanted to allow himself to believe it was true, but that he would reason with himself as he left there, no, 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 I can't let myself go down that path because that's that's just too good to be true. Could it be? No, 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 it couldn't be. I can't let myself think that. That would just be too wonderful. And this question, could it be, is often part of the first steps of faith that a person takes. And I believe that what often happens is people get to the place where they want to believe in Jesus. But it all just sounds too good to be true. It sounds too, you know, pie in the sky. And so they, they pull back. And if you're a person like that here today... You've walked right up to the edge of belief, but you've pulled back because it just seems too good to you to be true. Jesus' closest disciples have had the exact same experience that you're having. They got past it because the evidence was so great that it did not make sense to hold on to their skepticism any longer. And my prayer for you today is that their testimony, their witness, their fair accounting of how things happened and what was going through their mind, that their testimony would be used by the Holy Spirit to break down that final bit of skepticism that rests in you. Which I think for most of us is the result of fear that we're going to give ourselves to something that isn't true. Friend, this is true. You can trust the testimony of these initially skeptical witnesses. You can trust the testimony of the Bible. You can trust Jesus. It's true. You you don't have to fear that you're going to get taken in like a, another sales pitch that you get suckered into and end up with a worthless product. I think that is the fear that many people have as they begin to entertain this question, could it be true? But they're afraid it's not. What is said about Jesus Christ is absolutely true. You can trust it. You can trust Him. And finally, I think that's That's the next point that we should take. That we can take Jesus 
at his word. If he says it, it will come to pass. The angel said to the women who found the tomb empty, he's not here, he is risen. And then I love this part. He says, remember how he told you while he was with you? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day raised again. And it says, then they remembered his words. Matthew's gospel also makes this point. It's it's the verse I always read on, on, on Easter. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. I love that that emphasis uh, is made. Jesus had told, this, told them this would happen, and yet somehow they had not allowed it to take root in their minds. Maybe they thought Jesus was speaking figuratively. Maybe they just didn't know what to think about it, so they just had kind of dismissed it. But it seems fair to say that Jesus had told them that he would rise again repeatedly and that they had failed to believe what he had taught them repeatedly. Friends, we can trust that what Jesus has said will come to pass, really will. There is not one word that has ever been spoken by Jesus. There is not one word in the Bible that will not come to pass exactly as it is written. Not one They failed to believe what Jesus taught them very clearly. And we should not make that same mistake. We can take him at his word. Including these words spoken by an angel as Jesus ascended into heaven. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. You can take Jesus at his word. That is true. Including these words of Jesus. I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. We can take Jesus at his word. The church exists because skeptical people became convinced of the resurrection. They became convinced because the evidence left them no choice but to believe. Everything Jesus says is true. We can take him at his word including that he is coming again. Why don't you stand?